Edie's Sustainability Uncovered podcast is hosted in partnership with Lloyds Bank. We're delighted to have Lloyds Bank involved as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank works with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Hello and welcome to the ED podcast broadcast in partnership with Lloyds Bank. It's the week ending Friday 24th of February and this is Sustainability Uncovered, the show for anyone and everyone working in or passionate about sustainability and climate action. Coming up in today's show, we speak with Lloyds Bank's Head of ESG Finance about the crucial connection between corporate sustainability and finance teams. One of the areas of leadership that I think is going to be really, really crucial for sustainability leaders to have real world impact is going to be about talking the language of business and almost obsessively try to understand that. Because once you have that obsession of understanding either a sector or a company or or, or a particular individual, it then allows you to very squarely apply all sustainability to that business context. The great sustainability solutionist Solitaire Townsend gives us her take on how businesses can unleash their answer activists to create a more sustainable society. The biggest differentiator I've seen between businesses that really activate sustainability and those who are so, so, so slow to make change, it's nothing to do with what that business does. It's nothing to do with how well resourced the team is. It's nothing to do with whether there's a clear business case. It's almost always to do with whether there's a really amazing high-functioning team of people with complementary attributes making the change internally. And we talk about the mental health and well-being of sustainability professionals with Henry Majid, the co-founder of well-being platform MyMind. Events over the last couple of years have upended work and life as we know it. This uncertainty and these increasing demands means that sustainability leaders are amongst the most impacted. Covid, climate, conflict and now cost of living and the combination of the issues that are happening around us and our lack of ability to be able to control those. I think it's not surprising that we've seen an increase in this environmental anxiety overall and our ability to, to be able to respond to it. Plus, we'll be reflecting on the breaking up of the government's business and energy department, some shocking new stats on global deforestation, and a fascinating new survey commissioned by former Unilever boss Paul Polman. All of that and more covered in this week's episode of Sustainability Uncovered. So yes, hello and welcome along to Sustainability Uncovered. Uh, I'm Edie's Content Director, Luke Nichols, back once again in a much warmer podcast studio now. We've ditched the scarves and gloves from last month's frosty episode. Uh, But we've also ditched a member of the team because today we're joined by just one half of the dynamic editorial duo, that is Matt Mace and Sarah George, because Matt's decided to gallivant off on holiday with his partner and his dog, um, two separate entities, I must say, um, off to the Cotswolds, uh, I believe. So, uh, yeah, all right for some. But the good news is that uh, our senior reporter, Sarah, is here running the show. Sarah, hello. How are you coping in, in Matt's absence? I'm doing all right, thank you. Um, I did have a bit of a, a faff this morning and think, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> How am I going to get through this whole list of stuff to do without Matt? But you know what, it's actually been quite peaceful, been mm. easier to focus. Wow, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, it's otherwise been a bit of a frantic feb, hasn't it? Um, there's been some 
some serious sig significant sustainability and, and climate announcements um, along with a couple of our own webinars of online and online events. So it's a good sign that you're, you're coping well with the amount going on. Um, of course, we've got our flagship ED23 conference just around the corner taking place on 1st and 2nd of March. I'll be sharing more details on that a bit later. Um, but Sarah, I've got a bit of a confession to make, which I thought I'd share right at the start of this episode of Sustainability Uncovered, because um, I haven't actually been uncovering much sustainability over the last month, as you may well be aware. Um, I've had my head down working on a number of our own events and projects. Um, haven't been keeping up with frantic feb in the world of climate action and sustainable business. So, for a bit of educational fun, I thought uh, we could play news anchor. You could play news anchor for us and, and give us your top three or, or three most notable headlines from February so far with a quick explainer on each. So do you have some headlines ready for us? I do have them ready. I'm not okay. going to pretend that we haven't talked about this before and I'm just um, pulling them out and thank you for the early uh, early um, confession, Luke. Maybe the next iteration of the podcast could be Sustainability Anonymous. Mm, this is true. <laughs> um, right, so I'm going to turn to our trusty sound effects board for this one because uh, no reading of the headlines is complete without a bong. Um, a church bell bong, I mean, just to clarify. Um, okay, so uh, first up, Breaking up is never easy to do, but we've broken up with bays this month. Um, so the biggest story that I've been covering, I'd say, is that on Tuesday, 7th of February, UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak confirmed that he'd be disbanding the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, bays for short. Um, this is something he'd promised in his leadership campaign against Liz Truss. He said he wanted to give energy more of its own focus amid the price crisis. Um, and this brings us back to a structure that some might be similar to what what pre-Theresa May the setup was like or how Labour has it where um, energy and business are held separately. Um, long story short, the energy part of Bayes is now in a new department for energy security and net zero that's headed up by Grant Shapps. Um, debate is ongoing about the acronym for this department and how to pronounce it. Is it Desnes, Desnes, something else entirely? Um, but more importantly, there's debate about the teeth and the actual level of net zero focus because when, when the department's initial sort of remit was set out, the, the words net zero were actually quite absent mm. from that. There's also questions about how quickly will this get up and running. Mm. The government's meant to get a high court response um, about its net zero strategy by the end of March. It also needs to respond to the net zero review. It's got Brexit backlog, COVID um, backlog. So we'll see how quickly this can get up and running. Sunak also created three other departments through a string of mergers and changes to remits. Um, and these are going to absorb the business and industrial strategy parts of, of Bayes. And there's going to be, we hope, a more strategic link between business and trade. Mm. Okay, yeah, interesting. I mean. Yeah, I said I had my head underground, uh, not that far underground. I did, <laughs> I did see this announcement when it came through. It's generally, as you say, I mean, it's been pretty well received by mm -hmm. the industry. Um, most seem to be agreeing with this sentiment of having that kind of arm's length net zero body, which is more squarely focused on enacting the work that, as you say, was highlighted by the Skidmore Review on net zero, along with tackling energy security, um, particularly at the moment. Um, but I think there is also a, a bit of a fear that breaking up the department in this way might come at the expense of cross-governmental collaboration, which is a problem we faced in the past. Um, we still face it. Yeah. I'd say it is a problem, but we're, st we're already facing it, even with Bayes. Mm. So. Um, and as you also say, I mean, I must be honest, for a government that's got such a great track record of acronyms and buzzwords, I was quite disappointed they've ended up with this name of Desners, which doesn't quite have the same ring to it as DEC or 
the Bay's predecessors. Um, anyway, Sarah, thank you for that first one. Right, ready for another hit of the bong? <laughs> you know what hit me. Great. Um, there are big questions about corporate net zero targets in our second headline. On Wednesday, the 15th of February, Global Canopy published its latest annual Forest 500 report. Um, published annually, this report tracks the deforestation-related policies and performance against them of 350 businesses and 150 financial institutions. Of the 350 businesses covered, 31% still have no deforestation commitments for any of the commodities they're exposed to, which is pretty poor mm. showing. Um, also, only half of the companies with any commitments are actively monitoring their suppliers or sourcing regions to check whether activity meets their policies. And Global Canopy is warning that this is ultimately going to undermine the delivery of corporate net zero targets. Of the 350 companies covered by Forest 500, 145 have a public commitment to reach net zero. Um, Global Canopy has documented a five-fold increase in these targets over three years. Um, but of these 145 companies, Global Canopy believes that um, only 2% will reach their net zero target because most of the others just have action on deforestation that's simply too weak. Um, so this ties in well to a broader motion to dig deeper into net zero commitments, especially after the UN set out its framework for scrutinising these targets at COP27. Mm, yeah, it's uh, made for a pretty grim, grim reading, this one, and those stats you just reeled off. I'm sad to say it's no real surprise in a way. I think we felt like we were reaching a turning point uh, at COP26 in, in 2021 with deforestation when countries effectively committed to end it um, to some extent under the Glasgow Declaration on, on Forests and Land Use, and that was supported by the Paris Agreement, of course, and the mm -hmm. Global Biodiversity mm -hmm. Framework. But uh, of course, I think as that, as you've just said, and as the report, um, I believe, mentioned, is we just don't have those policies in place to put that into practice. So better regulation most certainly needed. Um, okay, Sarah, your third and final hit of the bong. Yes, so our last bong of the day goes to former Unilever CEO Paul Pullman, um, and the headline is New Evidence of Conscious Quitting Emerging. Mm -hmm. So Pullman published the results of this survey of around 4,000 workers across the UK and US, which he said provides compelling new evidence of what he calls conscious quitting. So this is a movement in which employees are walking away from businesses that fail to show strong values related to environment and society. Uh, Two-thirds of the employees in the UK said they aren't currently satisfied with corporate efforts overall um, to improve society and the environment. Across the UK and the US, um, three-quarters of people said that they were looking for commitments on ESG issues from jobs they apply for. So they'll go straight to look for that before choosing whether to apply um, or not. And also almost half of people, 45%, said that they'd consider quitting from a position if the corporate values did not align with their own values. So this came shortly after research on so-called climate quitting in the UK workforce published by KPMG last month. So climate quitting is conscious quitting, mm. but purely about the, the, the climate lens. Yeah, really fascinating piece of research that. Well worth having a read of the report. I think the net zero employee barometer had noted down. What I really like is that kind of connection, I think it refers to, between the great resignation, as, as, it, as we all know, which is not dissipating at the levels expected, by the way, and, and the great retention, as they put it, which reinforces, uh, I think, in this context, that CEOs and their boards must recognise that, that crucial link between job satisfaction and company's social and environmental impact. And where better to insert another shameless plug 
Ferrari D23 event taking place on the 1st and 2nd of March in London, uh, where Paul Pullman will be joining me on stage uh, for a conversation where we'll be, be touching on this very issue. So uh, for more details on that, just search ED23. I'll be giving you address the address uh, later on. Right, uh, let's crack on with the, the rest of the show then, because uh, Matt's absence from this episode of Sustainability Uncovered means a couple of things. Uh, firstly, and most importantly, I'm afraid that the rules of our ongoing Big Fat Sustainability Quiz dictate that it's a default victory for me uh, this week. So I guess that makes it two all for the series. And, and Matt, if you're listening from your Cotswolds mansion, uh, hard luck, uh, all to play for when you're back. Secondly, uh, Matt's absence has meant that we have had to pick up all of the interviews for this episode of the show ourselves. I say we, you're looking at me, you gave me a little glare there, Sarah, I saw it. Uh, what I actually mean is you, uh, because really from this point, you're running the episode, uh, as you've done all three interviews uh, we're about to hear. So uh, over to you, where are we going first? Um, so first, we are going to our podcast partner, Lloyd's Bank, um, and to David Willock on their team. And I spoke with him to get a flavour of what it actually means to be a sustainable business leader. So that's whether you're in a sustainability team or whether you work elsewhere and you're championing this work um, in 2023. Um, and David and his team, he told me, have completed dozens, if not hundreds of meetings with um, business sustainability and finance teams over the past 12 months. So he's really well placed to bottle the essence of what leadership looks like this year, um, really setting the scene for the event, um, but also for the month beyond. Yes, our Business Leadership Month, obviously, in, in March. Um, okay, so let's get straight into it. Here's uh, Sarah's chat with Lloyds Banks, Managing Director, Head of ESG Finance and Structuring, David Willock, in full. So, David, I guess the obvious place to start would be with an introduction to yourself. So it'd be great to set the scene um, and the listeners can hear a little bit about yourself and, and your role, please. Super. Um, well, my name is David Willock and I lead the sustainable finance business at Lloyds Bank. Um, so what we do in that team is we use financing, education and partnerships to support our largest clients across the real economy and financial services to become more sustainable. So what does that mean in practice? Um, we have a multidisciplinary team of around 25 people. And we engage with clients across um, all sectors. So that could be consumer and tech. It could be public sector, financial services, private equity, real assets uh, and, and other service industries. And, and we engage them um, in a segment, really, as we'd call it, above 100 million turnover all the way to the FTSE 100. So these are the largest enterprises in the UK. Um, in terms of my own sort of background, my interest in sustainability probably traces back to my undergraduate degree. So I studied economics and international development at the University of Bath. So I kind of focused really on economics of growth, um, sustainable development, go governance and politics. So I guess I've always been interested in the sort of intersection of business and society at a sort of individual level all the way up to regions, nationals and, and international level. Um, so naturally, um, what you do when you study economics, international development, I went and worked in, an, in a bank. So I did that for nearly two decades now. Um, but really joining Lloyd's in 2015 really helped me bring those two things together in terms of finance and, and sort of sustainable focus. So um, I started off in the built environment, leading on uh, sustainability in our real estate business. And then in 2021, um, I helped set up uh, the sustainable finance business. Alongside my day job, I do a couple of other things. So I'm a lecturer at a couple of universities, um, but also sit on a number of sort of sustainability related committees, be that sort of low markets 
also things like the Next Generation Initiative and other bits of built environment sustainability. So that's a little bit about me. Very busy man, it sounds like. And um, with all of that in mind, a great person to talk to about, yeah, this theme of sustainable business leadership, given that you are a leader in this field yourself and through your work, I don't doubt that you work with a lot of others in the same sort of profession with similar skill sets. Um, so with that in mind, I guess I would like to set the scene and ask um, about what do you think are the most important traits for a sustainability leader to embody in this in this context of, of 2023? So, you no, know, it's, it's, it's a really great question. And um, I've been reflected on, on that. And, and just to give you some context, since, since, you know, the start of 2022, me and my team will have held around 800 meetings with clients across all those sectors. So I feel like we've got a really privileged position to sort of understand exactly what's on the mind of not just sustainability leaders in these sort of uh, industries, but also crucially the finance and senior leadership in some of these businesses. And I'm really privileged to be here today. I'm a a fond listener and I'm really conscious of um, the level of expertise that will be listening in. So what I've tried to hone in on and uh, we, we can find out if that, if that works or not on some traits that I can observe from current market trends that may be a little bit beyond um, what we often talk about. So I'm going to give that a go. Yeah, do go for it. And I think it's worth noting that when we say leaders, it's not necessarily just the sustainability team. It is great to see that you're also working with leaders who might be in the finance team or or um, other departments. But regardless of what what department, what skills do you think are, are the top top ones to be to be embodying this year yeah so it, it, it's a really good point around um disciplines and we mentioned a couple there now you know sustainability is innately in its nature uh, multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary so that's why i'm very interested in some of those intersection points because innately that there's no getting away from the fact that sustainability is innately complicated but also at the same time, it's it's completely interconnected. And what that has led me to believe is that a sustainability leadership trait that we need to foster, develop and amplify is around translation. Basically, on my travels, obviously, we, we get pitched lots of ideas. We meet many, many different people from many, many different backgrounds. And I, I think what we can see happening is to to make the progress that we need to make on these topics it needs to see a coming together of sustainability of academia of technology of business of finance and to navigate that it's an incredibly complicated web of skills and people and ecosystems so i think what i can see is this role of a a translator to really Uh, make tangible impact. So uh, I just want to unpack a little bit about why I think this is a need and why I think it's a challenge. I I, I think one of the challenges is we're fortunate that we've got some fantastic um, experts that have been focusing on sustainability all their lives, in some cases many, many decades. But now with the ascent of sustainability on a corporate agenda, we need to bridge the gap between that deep and long-term expertise into a stakeholder group that they may not be so au fait with influencing. So I I think there's a a real mismatch there um, that that we need to address because in extremists, what I've seen happen is incredibly well intended, incredibly well educated subject matter experts just not being able to land where they need to land with with this audience. Uh, And the, the second point is 
what we're seeing is other megatrends happening in the world. Okay, so what that means, what I mean by that is sustainability. Very often, some of these solutions require technology as well. So what you're seeing is a layering of complexity. You have a sustainability layer that's actually quite innately complicated. You then lay over a technology lens that's actually quite complicated. And then these might be applied into a financing context. So straight away, you've got these three layers of different disciplinary complexity. Again, I, I think that just highlights why the translator or the translation skills is, is going to be super important to, to be successful in, in, in this area. Um, and, and finally, the other driver of why I think uh, translation is going to be super important is when you look at how sustainability is evolving, particularly at the interface with finance, it's it's becoming alphabet soup. It is a lexicon that is becoming incredibly nuanced, incredibly challenging to navigate. And in extremis, it's it's not inclusive and it's going to be difficult <clears throat> for stakeholders to engage. And, and I'll come on to why it's important that we keep stakeholders engaged, because if there's any any barriers to inclusion, we might not get the results that we all want in terms of driving urgent and meaningful change. So that's the sort of problem statement. I, I think the sort of what does that mean? What does a leader look like in that context? Leaders need to know enough about a broad range of areas, but then crucially, they need to know where they can go almost immediately for trusted deep technical knowledge on those areas. And they need to have the confidence to be very vulnerable in those areas to say, look, this is where this conversation's gone. This is where this engagement's going. I don't understand X, Y, and Z, but I know exactly who does. So I think that sort of knowing enough about enough to then be able to signpost to who does know and have that network of people that can support. Um, I, I think the other element of this leadership is around helping experts communicate with this new stakeholder group. So this is about the softer skills of understanding how, how do you make that expertise come to bear with this new audience? And I think that's a leadership skill that's really required at the moment. And also leaders challenging themselves and others to sort of declutter the language and say, actually, you know what, how can we convey this in a simpler way as possible to engage the most amount of people? And I think the inverse of that is leaders that sort of revel really in the complexity of the alphabet soup which fundamentally we, we all can fall into that trap um that's my sort of run through around sort of translation as a sustainability leadership skill excellent i love that phrase of decluttering the language so sort of putting a blender in the alphabet soup until there's not so many um letters and and as you mentioned there are new audiences looking for this information there's undoubtedly if you are a sustainable an ability professional, a lot more engagement from the board who come to you and want things done, from finance who come to you and want and want things done, um, from business partners. And you mentioned um, cutting the jargon. Um, is there a way to do that by essentially highlighting the opportunity here? You said it's important to talk to business and build build the business case. And some for me, something that goes with the alphabet soup as well is not looking at the um, the opportunity necessarily especially distancing this from the the economic um opportunity so what's what's your advice on translating this 
Yeah, so, so a bit like the example I gave on technology, you know, when, when you bolt on sustainability with tech, with finance, you know, there's a whole raft of language that we've not got to navigate. <clears throat> so I think there is a coming together. Business has got to come forward as well. And I think, you know, to, to understand, to meet, meet halfway. But I, I think what I've observed, particularly in the last nine months, is there's a much more difficult economic and political backdrop um, to the, both, both you know, the business community and everyone, really. And, and, and that's going to create challenges to what I call staying the course. And, and, and this is, you know, if we look back from sort of 18 onwards, we had such a significant ascent of sustainability as a, a key boardroom and, and, and inter, you know, international uh, topic of focus for senior leaders. But um, through some of the economic challenges that we're working through at the moment and the geopolitical challenges, there's going to be challenges to staying on. And actually, if you think we wanted people to increase ambition, we wanted people to move from commitment to more action. There's going to be increasing friction points. There's going to be increasing moments where that business opportunity doesn't um, stack up versus the sustainability ambitions that others would like to see. So, so one of the other areas of uh, leadership that I think is going to be really, really crucial uh, for sustainability leaders to have real world impact is going to be about talking the language of business. And, and what I mean by that is to, to sort of apply the same rigour and passion to sustainability, to understanding business. Because business has its own lexicon, it has its own sort of way, w ways of working that's been subject to you know, gazillions of, of business books and um, university courses. But what I mean by that for leaders, just to make it really tangible, is saying, how does this sector make money? How does this business make money? How is this individual that I'm trying to influence? How are they remunerated? How do they um, assess their own performance and the performance of their teams and almost obsessively try to understand that and then try to understand some of the key performance indicators, some of the peers that operate in that sector, who the key clients are, who the key, key suppliers are. Because once you have that obsession of understanding either a sector or a company or, or, or a particular individual, it then allows you to very squarely apply all sustainability to that business context. So I think that's a really, really important thing that I'd love people to take away is um, my, my initial degree was in economics. And the thing that always stuck with me, Adam Smith, um, was around, you know, the benevolence. We, you know, we don't get our dinner from the benevolence of the butcher or the baker. It's in their innate self-interest. And, and I think this squarely goes to that is as we're under more pressure from externalities, how can we make sure sustainability and the business objectives are really well aligned and really well articulated? So some tangible examples I've got of that. If we look at science-based targets, okay, so I think it's generally accepted that that is you know, the gold standard. There's been a huge uh, volume of uh, companies signing up to science-based targets, but then there is still some areas that are really struggling to get on that journey. So rather than sort of having the conversation about why haven't you got a science-based target, another way of framing it in a business context would be looking at your key clients. It would appear that X many of them have science-based targets, and it would also appear that X percentage of their emissions are in the supply chain. Where do you see that going? 
because because the logical extension of that is that they will seek that their supply chain have science-based targets so it then becomes more of a conversation of can the business afford to risk those cash flows it doesn't become a conversation about should you set a science-based target and why it's more about the back solving of can we afford to use those revenues and and similarly you know, when we look at peers you know, business is innately very often competitive and, and businesses often will be peer benchmarking. They'll be looking at their revenues. They'll be looking at their margins. So, again, looking at peers and using that as a lens to drive the business case to meet sustainability is a really, I find, a really useful one. It's saying, well, hang on, we've looked at the ESG metrics of you and these other five peers. Do you recognise them as peers? If so, how are you intending to manage your peer position versus others? And it's just a different way we found of approaching things uh, to align it to business objectives rather than just purely sustainability objectives. Got it. And that part of that embedding, that strategizing, that taking this from a side piece to mainstream um, and all of what we've talked about, David, there's so many opportunities here for leaders to talk to new stakeholders, improve their communication, get their stories heard in media, get their strategy on the board, speak the language of risks, form new partnerships. And this all sounds incredibly exciting, but it's also probably a lot of responsibility. Um, I know that a lot of people that we see are getting busier and and busier. Um, so I wanted to talk on why it's important to, to have personal resilience um, as as a sustainability leadership skill. We've talked about some other soft skills, but I know that this is an important soft skill that we'll be honing in on this month too. Yeah. And, um, you know, just to give you some context, we, we've hired, you know, from a standing start in the team in 2021, we've hired 23 people. So we've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people over that period of time. And sustainability is undoubtedly a really high intensity recruitment area at the moment. Lots of opportunities, again, fantastic for people. But what I've observed is sustainability people innately are very passionate. They are quite hopeful. Uh, they're very energetic and purpose orientated. At the same time, they can actually be very sad and can sometimes feel a bit doomed and and actually can burn out quite easily so there's that paradox that, that, that I think we exist in at the moment that sort of um you know the ups and the downs overlaid by this sort of dynamic that I often say it's both a marathon and a sprint so basically we're asking people to commit for the long term 2050 and beyond but at the same time we're saying we must prioritize immediate urgent action that we can't even comprehend you don't get many sprinters that also run marathons and vice versa so i think the ask on sustainability professionals is, is pretty tough and, and also for the reasons i mentioned at the start you know really complicated uh, different audiences talking to business business and people we haven't had to speak to before it's it's a lot. So I strongly believe, you know, we have to lay the right sustainability foundations for ourselves and our teams. And I think this goes into leadership. You can't really lead sustainability if you're not sustainable individually. So I think it's coming up with those authentic strategies and tactics and infrastructure to stay on the right side of the, all that personally as best we can. Um, and the second actually is about our teams. So it's really recognising and understanding what sustainability looks like on a team level and an individual level, how we can create the right environments, how we can create the right support networks. But also, I think to understand our teams well enough and have 
open dialogue up and down an organisation and sideways to know when things aren't quite right. If it's a marathon and a sprint, it's also a bit of a a relay if you have a good team. Um, Love that metaphor. So, David, thank you so much for your time. I think we're out of time for this segment of the podcast, but I think we've covered so much ground in the amount of time that we've had. So thank you so much for sharing all your insights with us today. No worries. Well, thanks for having me. Yes, thank you very much to David uh, and to Lloyds Bank, our podcast partner. Right, now we have two more interviews still to be delivered up by Sarah, but we've covered a lot of ground in this last half an hour. So it's time for a quick break, but don't go anywhere because when we return in just 30 seconds time, we'll be delivering up some fascinating chats about climate solutionists and your mental health and well-being. See you in a tick. You are listening to Sustainability Uncovered, and you've just heard our conversation with Lloyds Bank. The ED team are delighted to have partnered with Lloyds Bank for this new podcast series, as they support UK business in the transition to a more sustainable future. Businesses of all sizes have the chance to power and accelerate this transition, and seize the huge opportunities presented by it. Lloyds Bank work with clients not only to help finance this transition, but also to understand the challenges they face and the business prospects they look to capitalise on. To find out more, search Lloyds Bank Sustainability. Lending is subject to status. Welcome back to Sustainability Uncovered. I'm joined here still in the studio by Edie's one-woman editorial band, that is Sarah George. Um, Sarah, where are you taking us next? I like hearing you say I'm joined, you're joined still as if I could have made a bolt <laughs> for it in the 30-second um, break. So next I am taking you, I guess, technically across the ocean to America at the moment. Um, because our next speaker is actually there at the moment doing um, doing the circuit over there. And our next speaker is Solitaire Townsend from Futera. Um, attendees of ED's annual conferences will know that she's been chairing these for a number of years, including virtually um, during COVID. And she was on hand to continue the conversation from what we spoke about um, with David, look about what it means to be a leader at this point in time. Um, through the lens of her job title, Solutionist, um, she actually has a book coming out in the coming months called The Solutionists um, on this issue specifically. Um, before then, she has described corporate sustainability professionals as answer activists. So the board now comes to them and goes, oh, what's a science-based deforestation strategy? What's a science-based climate target approach? How can we do this while saving X amount of money? Um, they are the answer activists. Um, so she is on hand to run us through exactly what a solutionist is, what an answer activist is, and how you as uh, your organisation can better support um, our solutionist skill sets. Mm. As you say, a solutionist uh, in her own right, a great speaker and always full of such positive energy. So really looking forward to this one. Here's Sarah's chat with Futera's co-founder and chief solutionist, Solitaire Townsend, in full. Yes, hello, Zolly. It is an absolute delight to have you on Sustainability Uncovered for this edition. How have you been? Hi, Sarah. Um, It's really, really exciting for me to be here. I've been doing very, very well, Um, finishing a book, uh, working and watching the world. I'd say aren't we all, but definitely on the watching the world part, not so much the book part for me. Um, And I'm sure we can dive into the book um, later, but for in, t- in terms of me and you speaking, I don't think I've actually seen you since our event this time um, last year. And this is an event that you've chaired several times. You always have some great reflections on what makes a sustainability leader, um, and that kind of evolves throughout the days. I think you do a great job of summing it up. 
Um, so to get us into the mood for that, I was wondering if we could have your reflections on um, your views on sustainability leadership over the past year. We've, we've seen it described as a year of polycrisis, now a year of permacrisis. Leader definitely seems to mean something um, something new and evolving. Um, so if we could start with your sort of top level reflections on that to, to get us going, please, Holly. Well, I think in sustainability, we've been leading through a perma crisis for quite a long time now. And maybe the rest of the world is catching up that this is the way the world is going to be. Because, of course, those of us who have been aware of social injustice and of environmental crisis and particularly of climate change have not, shall we say, ever been in a steady state. We've been fighting against some of these really serious issues. We've been navigating our businesses through it. We've been coming up with solutions for some time. So when uh, a poly crisis or perma crisis was sort of the word of last year, um, part of me was like, what's new? This has been our this has been our our world for quite a long time. And now what that means for us is that we actually have got the skills, we've got the resilience, um, and we know quite a lot about how to navigate through some of these problems. And that's going to become much, much, much more valuable within the organizations that we work in, um, which is where things such as the ED conference and the ED community um become really important. We have to maintain our skills, we have to put push ourselves and we have to support each other. And when I look at the leadership um, on sustainability around the world, I'm seeing more and more people start a very big community. I'm thinking about 20 years ago when I could probably name most of the people working in sustainability. I probably knew most of them. And now this is a huge community on online. I think there was an estimate done recently that 400,000 people work in ESG and sustainability in the UK alone. On the other side, I'm also seeing a little bit of coyness from traditional leadership, from CEOs um, and C-suite, and this new term of green hushing becoming um, unfortunately more evident because particularly in the US, there is controversy around ESG and sustainability, not for any good reason, I can tell, um, more part of the culture wars, but that's leading to companies continuing on doing everything they've always done, but perhaps not talking about it. Does that matter? I would argue yes, because for a start, people need to know what you're doing in order to hold you account for it, in order to ask you questions and push you on it. And also, um, everybody, your staff, your consumers, your your customers, your um, partners want to engage with you. They want to know what you're doing. They want to be part of your journey. And so green hushing is on one side, one of the things that I'm very worried about, whilst on the other side, extremely excited about how our community is growing. Great. I'd say that it's nice to hear some relief that there is some trust in the self, um, trust in the skills set, um, and the opportunity to push back against the ESG um, backlash, as as you mentioned. And I wanted to ask, I'm sure we have some people listening who feel like they're not um, empowered to be a solutionist, to be an answer activist, that they might be working for an organisation that has that coy leadership or, or leadership that just doesn't feel well informed. So I wanted to get your views on what these people um, could potentially do and how you can leverage impact for, for good at, at this at this time. 
So this is exactly why I wrote The Solutionists. There are so many amazing books out there about how you do sustainability. There's not that many books or guidance about who does sustainability. And of course, change doesn't happen unless there's people championing it in every part of an organisation. So The Solutionists is for us. I wrote it for us. I wrote it for the change makers. I wrote it for the folks working on ESG, the folks who want to work on ESG, sustainability change makers, uh, climate justice activists, etc. for the people behind this purposeful movement. And within it, I give a lot of advice. Um, in fact, there's a whole troubleshooting section um, uh, around how you deal with the value action gap, how you deal with selling in to senior um, uh, folks who perhaps are being a bit green hushing. There's loads of great evidence and, and facts and proof points and business cases within it. But there's also advice for you and how you as an individual can continue your professional development and become a better change maker. And I put it around five uh, attributes that which we all need to work on. We need to work on our vision. Are we able to see where we're going? Have we got a clear trajectory of change for organisations. If you don't have that, things tend to stall or get sidetracked if everyone doesn't know where you're going. Grit, tenacity, that's that's that that's that's such an attribute of all the change makers that I interviewed for this book from the CEOs of IKEA and Orsted and Oatly through to amazing startup founders through to Bill Gates and other change makers that grit that tenacity that ability to hold on and just keep pushing is one of the reasons why we've had all the successes that we have then the third attribute is flex flexibility because grit and vision are fantastic. But sometimes if you're pushing against one door and it's not opening, you have to find another way in. If the door doesn't open, you've got to find a way to go through the window. And so actually, alongside grit, I go into some depth into the flexible mindset, the adaptable mind and about how you can grow that in yourself and how you can actually become a much more effective change maker by thinking laterally. The fourth aspect is fun. And by fun, I don't just mean a jolly group of people. I mean that actually we tend to be optimistic. We tend to be positively focused. And as a community, we tend to support and uplift each other. And that's a really important part of making change, because if we're not uh, working together, if we're not creating collaborations, if we're not um, uh, coming together as a community, we're going to really struggle isolated to make change. And the final point of the five point star um, uh, in The Solutionist is soul. Now, soul has a religious connotation, it has a emotional connotation, but I chose that word very, very carefully because everybody that I that I spoke, all these incredible people that I interviewed, the hundreds of people, thousands of people surveyed, um, have a deep sense of meaning about why they do this work. It's not the job title. It's often not the salary. We do this work because it matters to us as individuals. And that's something which you know, perhaps we could lean into a little bit more. When you look around the world and see some of the challenges that we're facing, these are deeply moral human issues. And so actually being a bit more honest about why we do it and why we're motivated to do this and that we're people who care can open doors that you might be surprised for. So vision, grit, flexibility, fun and soul. And I go into each of those and give a whole set of tools and models and examples 
there is so much to learn from each other. And that's what I tried to gather in this book. Fabulous, fabulous rundown of, of that. And I was going to ask, so these are all traits that an individual can and should embody and can work on honing and look to deploy at different parts in their career. Um, but we probably also have people listening that are um, in businesses and looking at how they can create the right environment um, to attract these people and properly em- empower um, them and we know that language is important and we know that governance is important so I wanted to come back to the title of the book The Solutionists um, and how Futera has solutionists as a job title so I wanted to get your thoughts on um, how businesses can empower people to turn talk into action by the way that they frame their roles and the way that they set up team structure and, and remit so if you're a business and you've got someone that embodies those five traits what can you really do to to nurture them? Such a beautiful question, actually. Now, I called this book The Solutionists um, with a little bit of trepidation. It's a new word. Actually, it, it, it is a word that exists. It's in the dictionary, but it's not a commonly um, uh, used phrase. But for a very long time, I've been looking for a word that sums up who we are. This vast, quite different group of people, some people working in startups, some people working in huge businesses, people working in government departments, people working in local authorities, um, people working on the front line of change. And uh, the solutionist word seemed to fit so many of them when I interviewed them. In fact, um, Kate Brandt, the chief sustainability officer of Google, seized upon the word and is now calling herself a solutionist um, uh, and dubbing other people in her team as solutionists. Because what a solutionist does, quite simply, is try to find answers to problems, trying to fix the problems. There's lots of other words, optimist, pessimist, um, activist, but solutionists seem to sum up very well the kind of people that we are. And that word matters. And also, yes, I do have the chief solutionist job title. I thought I'd put my own job where my mouth is in terms of the book, but I'm very much hoping I'm not the only person with that job title very soon. I want to see people using the word solutionist much more often in how they describe themselves. And how do you support people like that? How do you nurture a team? Such a whole set on team building in the solutionists and the type of people that we have within teams, that we have architect solutionists who see the very big picture and how everything could fit together in a huge system of change. You have at the opposite end, actioner solutionists, people who just get in there and get things done. And and as soon as there's a problem, large or small, they start working on it. But there's also accelerator solutionists. And these are the solutionists who gather teams together, who bring people, who inspire them, who put together um, uh, communities to make change. And if you know what kind of solutionist you are, you'll be able to know what other attributes to bring alongside your own. So I'm an architect. I love thinking really big thoughts and trying to map out whole world changes. And sometimes that's absolutely the right thing to do. But I need to work alongside actioners and accelerators because the accelerators are are the people who bring the team around ideas. And the actioners are the ones who actually do everything to make change happen. So one of the things I would ask everyone to do is reflect on the kind of change maker you are. Then acknowledge the fact that you can't be everything at all times and pull around you a team of people who just uh, amplify and support and who you can amplify and support. 
And one of the things which I recommend you do is actually map out your team, not just your direct reports, not just who's your boss, but actually who are your allies within the organisation that you work in? And outside of it, who are your stakeholders? Not just naming their job titles, but what kind of person are they? What are they great at? What are, why would you go to them with a problem that you are facing? Because this is the way that I think in the 21st century, we're going to have to start looking at problems. It's not putting together a team of the right job titles, but a team of the right skills, attributes and personalities. And in all of the over 20 years of working with so many different businesses um, and organizations all around the world. The biggest differentiator I've seen between businesses that really activate sustainability and those who are so, so, so slow to make change, it's nothing to do with what that business does. It's nothing to do with how well resourced the team is. It's nothing to do with whether there's a clear business case. It's almost always to do with whether there's a really amazing, high functioning team of people with complementary attributes making the change internally. It all comes down to us folks. Can't wait to get my hands on a copy of Solly's book, The Solutionists, uh, which is out here in the UK on April the 3rd and in the US on April the 26th. Uh, so thank you very much to Solly and we'll be hearing and seeing her at ED23 in just a few days time. Um, right now, Sarah, to complete the hat trick, uh, where are you taking us for our third and final interview of the show? Yes, yeah, so our third and final interview focuses on a topic that's been touched on in our other two issues, which is that sustainability also requires us to sustain ourselves, that we can't be effective change makers if we're absolutely exhausted and trying to pour from um, an empty cup. So for our last interview, we are speaking with Henry Majid at MyMind, um, MyMind being a mental health and wellbeing platform um, that has a partnership with us here at ED for ED23 to take a deeper dive into yeah, eco-anxiety, um, climate pressure and how this is all impacting our mental health mm. and what we can do about it. Yeah, and I should reiterate, you've mentioned that partnership there with MyMind, there are official health and wellbeing partner of ED23. It's a first for us and for that event. As part of that partnership, they're going to be delivering up some one-to-one -one consultations with delegates alongside some themed workshops to help this event's audience to take control of, of their mental health and, and prioritise the wellbeing and energy of their colleagues. So uh, let's hear a bit more about the state of health and wellbeing in, in sustainability right now. Here's your chat, Sarah, with MyMind CEO and co-founder Henry Majid in full. Hello, Henry. It is a delight to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing and where are you dialing in from today? Sarah, I'm great. Thank you. Um, it's wonderful to join you. Thank you ever so much for having me. I'm joining you from a slightly overcast Oxford. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to dial in. It is uh, crunch time for ET23, um, meaning that we're both running um, a little short on time. Me as someone that's helping to host the event. Um, and you're the man behind our health and wellbeing partner, My Mind. Um, so I think it would be great to start with a bit of an introduction to My Mind for people that might not have heard um, of My Mind. So it'd be great to hear a little bit about the organisation and what motivated you to to co-found it. Thank you. Yes. So it's probably worth sharing just a little about my background and the journey that, that got me here. So I started my career in neurology before moving into big corporates, particularly focusing around sustainability, how we could help large organisations to collaborate and innovate and address these big global challenges like sustainability. 
Um, and in a dual role, I'm also a visiting fellow at the Said Business School, where I lead programmes around um, strategy and innovation and leadership for resilience. And I saw that people were stu- were struggling, um, you know, at the beginning with COVID and the pandemic, but even issues like climate impact were amplifying an existing mental health crisis, people really struggling to address these challenges. And I felt like prevention is better than cure and early intervention can avoid suffering and crisis. And, you know, it's really important that we're equipping people to be able to not just deal with, but get ahead of challenges like these. And so we created My Mind as a workplace digital mental health platform that proactively identifies issues to enable earlier intervention and direct target support precisely where it's needed to help strengthen well-being and the protective factors to be able to face these kinds of challenges. So we're allowing employees to take control of their own mental health and well-being and supporting employers to align their well-being efforts around the specific needs of the organisation to really allow them to flourish and thrive and, and deal with these challenges. Great and what a great mission to to be on and you mentioned that sort of at the beginning of 2020 you were seeing um, climate anxiety and I wanted to to hear about since then have you noticed any uptick in environmental anxiety? Sure we've certainly seen you know this uptick um, as expected and I think what we've seen is over the events over the last couple of years have upended work and life as we know it and what we've seen is that this uncertainty and these increasing demands means that sustainability leaders are amongst the most impacted. Um, we've really touched on things like COVID, climate, uh, conflict and now cost of living. Um, it feels like there's this endless cycle of you know, often negative environmental news. And there's a sense of you know, sometimes feeling you know, we're, we're losing hope or we're feeling helpless. The task is so enormous and we don't necessarily have the control um, to be able to make a plan or to be able to address these challenges and you know we're seeing this play out in you know in different ways you know particularly around environmental anxiety we're seeing that there's you know sometimes a we don't necessarily have the ability to to face these challenges um, we don't necessarily have the ability to respond to these uh, these environmental challenges and you know, sometimes we don't have the ability to overcome these challenges and you know this particularly over the last couple of years some of the events that we've seen with you know, flooding with wildfires with um, you know rising temperatures with, with all of these challenges and the combination of the issues that are happening around us and our lack of ability to be able to control those I think it, it's not surprising that we've seen um, an increase in you know this environmental anxiety overall and our ability to to be able to respond to it. Got it. I mean, we have we have heard concerns that maybe this would drop off because people are more concerned about putting food on the table. But um, on the other hand, everything is is connected. We're recording this at a time where I went to the supermarket at the weekend, couldn't get most of my salad. Read on the news that it's actually because of extreme weather conditions in the places where. Um, tomatoes and and peppers are are grown so it does seem to all be coming back. No it's becoming very real so this you know part of this environmental anxiety it's becoming it's coming into our homes and our workplaces so it's the availability of food that we were you know we've always expected to to have 
you know on the shelves for us it's about um, our ability to to control these these supply chains the security of supply it's around you know access and availability of resources even down to things like the you know the energy the cost of living crisis much of which is driven by um, availability of energy uh, and the cost of energy and you know that's something that's also been impacted and so it becomes very real for us and we don't necessarily we, we feel the consequences of these but we don't necessarily feel we have the control or ability to um to address these so you know that's where we can feel that we're uh, often helpless uh, and that can then impact our our um, you know our well-being and, and mental health and, and ability to adapt of course and i mean if i'm feeling it i'm sure that people that are working as sustainability professionals and seeing not only the scale of the challenge every day but getting an ever growing to-do list um from the board every day is is yeah a lot of stress sure i think what we've found is that sustainability issues are firmly at the heart of boardroom discussions right now and this elevated position means that already demanding and potentially stressful roles have increased the awareness and profile for these professionals and it means that exhaustion and burnout is on the rise as they try to respond to these and there's a couple of there's a couple of areas that we've seen that are leading to this you know one of those is that you know these professionals are having to guide the organization through really difficult decisions which can sometimes have very long-term implications not just for themselves and their teams but their organization and you know sometimes the community and society and and the planet and they're often having to make these decisions with incomplete information there's an expectation they have all of the answers and you know this constant state of flux can be draining and then on the other side there's also a for many of these professionals there's a desire a deep desire to create a positive impact um, which can be overwhelming in this current climate because of inequity and conflict and this feeling helplessness that we touched on earlier there's this sense of always more to do and our own unforgiving expectations can become overwhelming over time so it it means the urge to endure rather than over uh, rather than recharge is overpowering um, and that's what we're seeing particularly with sustainability leaders that you know the task is always bigger than themselves and it can feel relentless and they don't necessarily they're not necessarily given the resources or, or have the control to be able to deliver against not just the expectations of the organization but their own expectations of course i mean yeah i've definitely seen a lot of people in this field expect a lot um a lot of themselves and at the same time their board expects a lot of them as as you said and then the scale of the crisis means that they are expected to do um, a lot. So I wanted to get your advice on how leaders within businesses can better support their own mental health and crucially as well support the mental health of, of their teams. Also, you know, I believe that there is an opportunity to emerge stronger, to protect and enhance our most vital asset, which is the health and energy of our people and equip them to, to be able to face into these challenges and for leaders to better lead their organisations through these challenges. I think one of the things that's really important to understand is that if we and those around us aren't feeling psychologically safe, it means we're more likely to build walls rather than bridges. It means we're not able to collaborate or innovate or create or, or create constructive dissent and allow us to challenge the status quo. Um, and so what's really important for the leaders to take into account, um, and we're all leaders, of course, leaders for ourselves, leaders for our teams, leaders of our organisation. So it's really important to create an environment uh, where, you know, we and our teams can really flourish and thrive. 
And there's some different elements to that. So one of those is around creating a common language and understanding of what we mean by mental health risks and resilience or our protective factors. It's really important that we role model and demonstrate what we what we expect and accept from those around us. This willingness to be vulnerable is very common for leaders uh, to feel like they must know all of the answers. They must be able to respond and say, this is precisely what you must do. And actually, that's really difficult when we think about mental health and well-being. You know, we don't need to be a therapist or a counsellor or, or to be an expert. Uh, we need to be willing to show uh, to show empathy and, and vulnerability um, through this role modelling. Uh, we need to invite the conversation. Very often we, you know, we feel you know, fear uh, about starting a conversation if we don't necessarily know how we might respond and often we're thinking about um, how we might answer rather than really listening to um, what's being said and you know part of that is empathic listening and creating the um, creating an environment where you're able to listen and give people the space to be able to answer and supporting your your managers and leaders to be able to do that you know, equipping them with the uh, with the knowledge, this common understanding, being able to signpost to um, other tools and, and resources for themselves and for others. And I I'll share a story um, that I, I sometimes talk about around my father. Uh, and so my father, when I was younger, used to often say to me, Henry, have you got your handkerchief? And I would inevitably say, no, I don't need one. Um, I don't have a cold. And he would say, it's actually not for you. It's in case someone else needs one. And you know, what I would really encourage leaders to do is ensure that they and the managers and leaders across their organisations have their handkerchiefs so they can help those around them and create that environment that is stronger and better able to flourish and thrive. And um, all of the leaders are, are equipped to be able to support those around them uh, with these challenges, not by having all of the answers, but by being willing and open to listen and to role model and um, provide the right tools and services to allow people to take control of their own mental health and uh, build up their protective factors and well-being. I love that story. So key takeaway for me is build bridges and, and carry handkerchiefs. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Got it. So, Henry, we're almost at the end of our call today. Um, and for leaders that are looking to support their own mental health and that of their team, I know that we're going to be working together on the ground at ED23 next week to help them with with just that. So it would be great to hear um, in your own words what we'll be be up to on the ground. Sure, we're really proud to be partnering with ED. You know, this is this is an area very close to my heart, and, and we recognise that these sustainability leaders have been impacted. And to progress our collective sustainability goals, it's vital that we build up our own resilience um, and protect, uh, promote, and restore the mental health and well-being of our teams and our colleagues to avoid these feelings of overwhelm. And we need a way to support these these people tackling the sustainability agenda to create this optimal environment of physical, emotional and psychological health. So we're partnering with ED to support the sustainability uh, practitioners. We've provided access to the MyMind platform for all of the attendees and the leaders within ED. Um, they're able to take the assessments, understand their own situations, get the support where that's needed. Um, and on the ground at the ED event, we're going to have our team of wellbeing advisors who you'll be able to come and have one to ones with to understand your own situation, understand what, what's available to you, uh, where you can access support and how you can best equip your 
your teams, your colleagues and your organisation to face these challenges ahead and you know, collectively um, try and get ahead of, of these challenges. Got it. Well, I look forward so much to seeing you at the event next week, Henry, and thank you for popping on the podcast today. It's a great pleasure. Thanks ever so much for having me. Great stuff. Such an important topic and one we're going to be focusing on a lot more on ED over the coming months. So stay tuned for that. Right now, I think that's a wrap for this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. I did actually have written down on a sheet of paper here, talk about ED23, but uh, I think this week's interviewees have I've done just that because we'll be hearing from Solitaire Townsend and Henry Majid at ED23 as if by magic. Uh, this is the world's largest corporate climate action event taking place in central London on 1st and 2nd of March. We're expecting 700 plus delegates. There are three themed stages, strategy, net zero, action, uh, hundreds of great industry leading speakers. If you work in sustainability or you're taking more of an interest in it professionally, this event is for you. Tickets are still on sale. Uh, you can visit event.ed.net forward slash forum to find out more. That's event.ed.net forward slash forum. Uh, right, we'll be back after ED23 in a month's time, hopefully rejoined by Matt for another bumper episode. Thanks to all of our special guests featured in this episode of Sustainability Uncovered. A special shout out to Sarah for running the show. Uh, and a special thanks as ever to our podcast partner, Lloyds Bank. So it's a goodbye from Sarah. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. Goodbye.